Hello, welcome to episode number 67 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, October 19th, 2009. Before I get into today's interview, I want to thank people for participating in the comment thread for the past two episodes of the podcast, uh, the episode on the fair trade soap and the episode on peak wood. Uh, There was a lot of great comments posted, not a tremendous amount of comments, but the activity on the comment thread had been pretty sparse in the past. So it's very encouraging to see people taking up the challenge that I set out in the last episode and having them participate in that comment thread. These website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, you do not have to register to leave a comment there. Uh, It may take a little time because all the comments are moderated for your comment to appear. But other than that, uh, it's pretty no hassle. So it's a good way uh, for us to build community and to get more listeners involved. I have read somewhere that the more people who actually participate in forums and comment threads, that actually brings in more listeners. So please do your part and get on there. If you have something to say, uh, please include that and share your thoughts with the community of listeners. I will also include a link to the RSS feed for the comments uh, right there on the left-hand side of the page of the agroinnovations.com slash podcast page, along with the iTunes subscribe link and the RSS feed for the posts, so that if you do start participating in the comments or if you just simply want to keep track of what other people are saying about episodes, you can subscribe to that RSS feed as well, and you can keep yourself updated on what people are saying about different episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast. So that will be up on the website for this episode of the Agro Innovations podcast, and it will remain there. Today I am joined by Nelson Lebo, a retired teacher and a retired organic farmer who is pursuing PhD research about the links between permaculture and education. Nelson, welcome to the Agro Innovations podcast. Thanks, Frank. I'm very happy to be here. Now, you actually contacted me. You're a frequent listener to the Kunstler cast, and uh, the Agro Innovations podcast uh, in the very recent past was a sponsor of a, an episode of the Kunstler cast. So it's good to see that those linkages are bearing fruit and in unexpected ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard your um, little sponsorship um, uh, blurb there, and then, of course, your phone call, and immediately it prompted me to, to go over and, and listen to a couple of your podcasts, and really, that's more of my area of interest, and so uh, I never would have found you had it not been for that link. Well, great. Um, so we're going to talk today about education and permaculture, and uh, let's just start by talking a little bit about the current context of education it seems to me that education is in a crisis. Here in New Mexico, there's been a lot of talk about cutting education funding because of massive budget shortfalls. Uh, the The education budget is tied to oil and gas revenues here in uh, New Mexico. 
And I imagine there's a similar debate that's going on throughout the United States. As we discuss budget cuts, we also realize uh, some of the statistics that were out earlier this year from New Mexico. Our graduation rates are pretty embarrassing, and it seems our students are pretty demoralized. In one of your essays, you quote the Holistic Education Network of Tasmania, and the quote is, As we ask students to develop critical and reflective thinking skills and encourage them to care about the world around them, they may decide that some degree of personal or social transformation is required. Students will need the tools of transformative learning in order to be effective change agents. Otherwise, students may feel disempowered, become pessimistic about the future, fear change, or develop a degree of cynicism towards those who promote change. Talk about this disempowerment and this cynicism in the context of education. I think it's very relevant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's hard to know where to start, um, but I think you know the crisis in education. And I've been reading, you know, when you're when you're doing doctoral research, you're reading the international literature, and a lot of what I read, it does sort of sound like there's multiple crises in education, and particularly high school education um, worldwide, and it goes far beyond budget cuts. And um, I think it goes to the um, this sort of traditional role of education, which can be described as transmissive, that the teacher transmits knowledge to the students, and they memorize it. And the, the goal of transmissive um, education is not only just to transmit information, but it's also to reproduce the current society. And when young people look at the news or, you know, hear even in, in music in a lot of songs, they're aware that there's a lot of problems in the world. And when they go to school and they're just learning, you know, the same, largely similar things to that were taught in the 1950s with very little recognition of the problems of the world, there's, you know, research that, that suggests that these are some of the, the, um, the, the paradox of, of education actually disempowering students because they feel overwhelmed, they feel powerless, and that this may lead to the rampant apathy and self-destructive behavior that people are com complaining about they, they see in, in teenagers and young people. And so from what this, this um, theoretical framework that I'm developing, what I'm interested in is transformational learning. And that's sort of the, the, the spirit of the quote that you read. And transformational learning theory, I'll try to keep this as non-academic as possible, um, but transformational learning theory is largely an adult learning theory. And it's this guy called Jack Mesereau, and he's developed as an adult learning theory. But I'm really interested in the transformational um, powers of education for adolescents, and that it's that the goal of education changes. That it's not about reproducing the the, the current structures of society, but it's actually about 
empowering students with the knowledge, skills, and encouragement to address the problems of the world, to learn about them, but actually to take action for them. And that is um, that's something that comes through in, in all of the current um, international literature in environmental education, that to be successful, to be complete, environmental education always needs to have an action component. Um, and that's where students are feeling that they're actually doing something. And that is part of this transformational learning experience that I believe is possible, and not only possible, but probably necessary for, for young people, um, especially I'm focusing on high school students because that's where my experience is from. Well, when you talk about transform, transformational learning and the problems that we face today, um, I would agree with you that it seems like our education system is in somewhat of a vacuum when we consider the, the very real crises that we face. Now, in one of your essays, uh, you write, and, and you're talking about the dual crisis of peak oil and climate change. You write, unsupported by teachers and or psychologists who can help them through the process, the self-examination stage, characterized by feelings of fear, anger, guilt, or shame, has the potential of being unnecessarily traumatic. Carefully planned, however, these issues can be utilized as the ignition of a secondary science, which would guide students through a complete transformational learning process using permaculture as both beacon and handrail. Tell us more about permaculture and transformational learning. Okay, this is, um, you know, there's sort of the, 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 the paradox here about talking about holistic systems and talking about systems thinking is that when you talk about them or when you write about them, you do it in a linear fashion. So I'm going to sort of be explaining some of these things. Um, so I may forget to include something um, because it's, we're talking about a web, but I'm telling it you know, one, one piece at a time. So I'll try to remember to include as many pieces as possible. And if I don't, please you know, you know, ask me to fill in a blank spot. So... As a, um, as a uh, teacher, a former teacher and, um, and, a, and a farmer, I developed my, uh, I was always an environmental science teacher, always interested in ecology. And when I started developing my farm, I was trying to do it as ecological as possible and as low budget as possible. And I found myself... Um, becoming a permaculturist long before I even heard the word permaculture. Um, one of those things where you, you read a book and you suddenly say, oh, I'm doing a lot of that stuff already. I didn't, you know, didn't know that's what I was doing. But after I learned um, that there actually was a design system, then I started reading more. And I went and, and took, a, took a couple courses. And what I noticed is that when you, when you take a, a permaculture design course, there's people who have sort of come to this realization that um, we're facing most likely some very big challenges in the future. And many of them relate to this dual challenge of, 
of peak oil and climate change. And David Holmgren has done a really good job in his future scenarios, which is which is available online for free, um, looking at the different, um, you know, the possible futures. <clears throat> and I didn't know it at the time, but what, what, what I was witnessing, of course, in myself and in other people, was what I've come to learn now is the first step of um, this 10-step process called transformational learning theory. And the first step is a disorienting dilemma. And it doesn't necessarily have to be environmental. It could be the loss of a job, or it could be divorce, um, even moving to a new culture. The, the, as long as you're disoriented, and then disoriented enough, I should say, that you're looking to, um, that, that you'll, you'll, you'll embark on an, a learning process that ends up in stage 10, so to speak, as a, um, as you've changed your frame of reference. And I was sort of putting things together, seeing like that the people who who were taking these permaculture design courses, a lot of them were doing so because they were in the midst of a disorienting dilemma. And many people who've been in business, um, you know, real estate agents, economists, I met a 70-year-old professor of economy and marketing two weeks ago, who in his early 60s realized that everything he's been teaching his whole life has been um, incomplete in terms of economic theories and and marketing. And he has totally embraced sustainability. And he's gone on to be the chief author of a major sustainability document um, here in New Zealand. Um, and to hear him speak at age 70, it really gave me hope, like, wow, you know, even if you're late in your career and you've been totally on on the side of li- literally globalization and consumption, he came to this transformational learning experience. Um, so looking at this, and then, um, you know, once you have this disorienting dilemma, of course, you'll have these feelings of, of fear and grief and, and um and regret a lot of people say, what was I doing my whole life? And what I've noticed from a lot of my my friends who are adult learners, they suffer. Once people learn, you know, they watch the end of suburbia and they totally freak out and they don't know what to do and they worry and worry and worry. And and that's what I mean that, that a lot of people go through the early stages of this transformational learning with a lot of suffering um, because they don't have support of, uh, I just put psychologists in because that would, uh, uh, you know, that would be applied to adults. But for young people, they do have a support system there, which is which is teachers, um, and that carefully, <clears throat> carefully planned and carefully designed a transformational learning, um, you know, say a unit, you know, a, a semester long unit. Which was based on um, some of the some of the challenges the world is facing, then leading the students through a looking at alternatives. Once you get down through the first couple stages of transformational learning, which are sort of um, the grief and and the um, looking for alternatives, 
Then it goes into the places of, of trying on alternatives, learning new skills, um, developing new um, aptitudes, and then finally coming to that you'll actually adopt those into your life. <clears throat> now that corresponds with um, a pretty major theory in environmental education, which is called action competence. And what that is, is when students choose to take, to, 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 to be green. Um, it's, it goes beyond this teacher saying, okay, class, we're going to do this as a group, or their parents saying, you know, um, go put the, put the food scraps in the compost pile. Action competence develops when students actually decide they're going to start taking on environmentally friendly behaviors. And we all know that you can't make anybody do anything, but the theory goes um, that carefully designed educational programs that include all of these steps and encourage students um, to, to take these actions, that that's what, um, you know, that's what may lead to, to greener um, choices among not only students, that's just who I'm working with, but uh, for everybody, anyone in, in the society. The role permaculture would play in this is that it is the, it's an established design system. It's been around for over 30 years. It's holistic. It's very solution-oriented. It's very scientific. And what I'm focusing specifically on is how permaculture can be integrated into high school science. Because high school is one place that struggles to um, really include environmental education in the curriculum. And in there's all these complaints that there's too much um, assessment, there's not enough time, it's an add-on, it's an extra. And so the, the curriculum that I'm designing is actually, the goal is to enhance the existing science curriculum. There's another um, sort of crisis in education that when I talk to people about it, no one has ever heard of it. But worldwide, there's an increasing tendency of students to choose not to take science classes beyond the, the point when they are required. So there's a mass exodus from science classes. After, it depends on what country you're in. Um, and students feel science is boring, it's hard, and it's not relevant to their lives. When I hear this, I just about fall off my chair. Science is around us all the time, every day. And sure, science and technology has caused a lot of problems, but permaculture, and, and of course this is just one design system, but permaculture offers science-based solutions on a human scale to a lot of the problems we face. And there are things students and families and schools and communities can embrace they can start working on them right away, and it's really good science investigation. If, you're, if you want to study physics, look at green design, look at renewable energy and electricity, look at um, passive solar buildings, 
and heat gain and heat loss and R values. Um, if you're going to be studying chemistry, look at soil chemistry. You can study pH and, and ion exchange capacity, you know, depending on the level of chemistry. Of course, biology is pretty much a no-brainer because you can, you can study ecology, you can study um, symbiotic relationships. In an organic garden on a school ground, you could study almost all the principles of ecology where you're getting out of the classroom, but you don't have to take a field trip where you have to arrange permission slips and a bus and you have to take a long time. By just walking out the door, immediately you're having a hands-on educational, um, you know, ecology field trip. Um, so these are so that's that's the, the the place that I'm going is specifically trying to enhance science education using um, applied ecological design, in other words, permaculture. <clears throat> so in a way. I'm, I'm, I'm um, telling people this is really high-quality science education. And it's true because all the international literature will back me up on this. But while improving science teaching and learning, students are developing, and, and this is the, the theory that I'm going with, is, is ecological literacy, the work of David Orr and Fritjof Capra, the Center for Eco-Literacy um, over in California. And so multiple, you've heard of the permaculture principle of multiple functions. You know, a well-designed curriculum can develop really good science understanding, but simultaneously it can develop ecological design skills, systems thinking, attitudes of care toward the environment, and then hopefully in the end, um, action competence toward the environment as well. Yeah, um, there, there's just one thing that keeps kind of running through my mind as I hear you talk about this. I mean, obviously, I agree with everything you're saying wholeheartedly. Um, I was at a Slow Money conference. There's an organ, uh, a new organization called Slow Money, and the founder of that organization talks about the velocity of money, uh, and he talks about you know all the negative consequences and side effects of this velocity of money concept and how rapidly money moves around the world. And he articulates a very uh, well-thought-out critique of, of fast money on the one hand. But on the other hand, I felt like there was a failure to recognize that that the velocity of money is underwritten by some very powerful, what I would describe as criminal elements in our society who are moving money around so quickly so that they can engage in their criminal activities. So when we talk about slow money, it's, I think, important to talk about who would be against it and why. And likewise, I think it's important to talk about permaculture and education. While it's so important, it seems that it's very counter to creating obedient consumers. Um, and I, it seems like if this idea were to start to get some traction, it would develop some very powerful enemies uh, who are also very good at propaganda. What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question, Frank. Um, 
I, um, yeah, it's funny because once, you know, I've been almost waiting my whole life for this moment. You know, I, as an environmental educator for 20 years, I always thought, oh, people are going to get it. One day, everyone's going to get religion, and we're all just going to jump on board, and we're going to have an eco-planet. And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and, and it wasn't happening. So I sort of dropped out of um, education, and I decided I would just, you know, live in my, my farm off the grid, last, you know, at the end of the road, closest neighbor, half a mile away. So I did that for a while, and then... You know, um, you know, listening to NPR every morning was starting to depress me. So I really thought, okay, I've got this experience as an educator. I've got this experience as a, as a um, sort of eco-designer, organic farmer. Um, how could I put these together to, to do something significant? Um, <clears throat> I think what happens a lot in the field is that there are really good teachers that don't know much about... Um, the environment or, or, or permaculture eco-design. And there's some really awesome permaculturists who are horrible teachers. Um, and I sort of thought, well, I've got experience in both of those realms. Maybe I could put my unique um, um, skill set to work. And, of course, I got excited and I came up with this idea. And at the time, I was um, selling some things on Craigslist and when people would come up to my farm, they'd be amazed just because it's a beautiful place. And we would start chatting, and I would tell them about my research ideas. And everyone was so positive. Complete strangers were so positive. And I was just sort of getting this, you know, upward spiral, you know, it's a positive feedback loop. But then I was at a, a party, and I mentioned it to my, one of my friends, and they said, aren't you worried? I go, worried about what? And they said, well, there's a lot of powerful forces in the world who are very happy to keep the education system the way it is. And they wouldn't be interested at all in the, these ideas that you're talking about. And suddenly I, I thought, whoa, you know, is somebody going to put a hit out on me? Um, <laughs> you know, it was sort of this realization that, you know, it sort of burst my little idealistic bubble. Um, so I have been thinking quite a lot about that, and I've got a couple answers to it. Um, one is that um, I, I've sort of been following this, this Gandhi quote that goes something like this. <clears throat> the hardest thing to do in the world is walk with two feet, because one foot is in the world you want to create, and one foot is in the current reality. And I've been doing that for so long that when I read that quote, I was like, yeah, that is really hard. And it's a struggle. You know, we all go through this sort of, it, it's, it's why The Matrix is such a good movie, because anyone who really, really believes in, in um, strong sustainability wavers between these two worlds, uh, sort of the Matrix world and, and, you know, this other, this ecological world. So... Um, there's a couple things that I've done to address that. One is to dress my education, dress my um, proposal up as very high-quality science education. And there's few people in the world that would argue with that. However, you don't need to, you know, you don't need to read too deep into it to understand what the real goals of it are. Um, but there's the current world um, where 
Um, I'm doing my research in New Zealand for a couple of reasons. It's um, extraordinarily inexpensive to do PhD research here, um, so that's one of the reasons I'm here. And also, the new curriculum, the national curriculum, is quite progressive. And while it's written in very broad terms, it gives a great deal of empowerment to schools and to teachers. It has key concepts and um, and you know aims and um, all of these very noble, broad goals of the curriculum. And it's really up to the teacher and the school how to meet them. So it would be very easy for teachers just to maintain the status quo and teach the way they've always taught in a very transmissive way. However, if teachers wanted to take a very progressive, um, for example, permaculture approach to education, it would be fully supported by the curriculum. And in terms of um, teachers feeling safe in being, you know, um, teaching in, in a transformative way, it's fully documentable in the new curriculum. And it's, it's actually, not only is it fully documentable, but it's actually for teachers who are struggling to find ways to implement the new curriculum, it's actually a gift, making your, experience, making your education more hands-on, more community-based, more experiential, um, developing attitudes of caring. It has a future focus. Um, so that's one thing I've done is, is I've actually left No Child Left Behind. <laughs> I've left behind the No Child Left Behind to come to a place where um, I can work in an education system that is, that, that is a little bit that's going progressive. Um, that said, of course, you know, most teachers who've been teaching for years and years and years, they don't want to change. They feel overwhelmed, overworked, underpaid, underappreciated. But I do believe that if I can develop a model that, <clears throat> that can integrate permaculture into the science curriculum, not only that, what I'd really like to do include in this model is a way for local permaculturists to connect with schools. Um, because that brings a person with the hands-on experience and design experience together with a person who knows how to do education. And combining them, uh, the teacher and the local permaculturist could really give students um, significant hands-on local solution, science-based, but also inspiring. Most permaculturists I know are, are pretty manic, um, and so it's good to, to have teenagers exposed to these people who are so excited. Um, I believe it's happening now, everything you hear about Africa in terms of the drought, but also that this whole um, neoliberal globalization as an economic model has failed Africa. There are some pretty um, astounding revelations that came out last February, I believe, from the World Bank, if not the United Nations, and even Bill Clinton said, we were wrong on Africa. So I believe that as we go into hmm, this, well, as this economic, as we, as we never pull out of this economic crisis, and as the dual, dual um, threats of climate change and, and peak oil become more and more real, it's the poorest countries in the world 
who will bail out of the globalization model first. And it's going to take a very strong leader, a president, prime minister, whoever, to say, we've had enough with this export agricultural economy. We need to feed our own people first, and we need to do it in a sustainable, ecological way. We need to hold water on our landscape. We need to capture organic uh, matter, and we need to have um, a, we need to be, um, have a small-scale, um, diverse, um, what we spread out with um, decentralized agriculture. Well, that's permaculture, and state schooling is going to exist for quite a long time. And so it's sort of my belief that once once I have this research in hand, and and I'm really interested in working with countries around the world. Um, that that those will be the countries that embrace this approach to education first because they, they're, they're the ones at the bottom of the economic um, pecking order. But I believe as the, as the pressures of, the, of this dual impact of, of climate change and peak oil, as it works its way up the economic pecking order, then more and more nations will decide we need to transform our education our education is no longer focused on becoming globally competitive. It is now on being locally sustainable. Um, and so he, here I am trying. You know, that's the fu- that's the future world that I that I sort of ant- anticipating. Um, and I think that lots of the theorists say that we're not going to go into a gradual change. It's going to sort of work in these bits and starts. And you know, this economic um, situation going on is sort of one example. You know, we had this huge um, shakeup, but now we're sort of inching our way back up again. I think the Dow was up over 10,000 yesterday, um, but other people are, are predicting this W-shaped recovery and, and, and all this stuff. But almost everybody says the road ahead is going to be shaky. Um, and so one thing I think we need to think about in terms of planning um, um, permaculturists and, and, and eco-design is we need to be able to respond quickly. Um, that it's likely that, that some of these things are going to be happening um, not as a slow gradual, but there'll be bits and starts. Um, but I guess in my heart of hearts, I believe eventually the people will say, we've had enough. We want locally sustainable, um, real, meaningful education that, that is going to um, enhance our community. And, and of course, um, when you look at so much of, of permaculture, it's based on really sound science. And as long as nations are going to be teaching science in schools, let's teach it, um, you know, in a in a relevant way to students' lives, but also in a solution-oriented way. Well, I have two points uh, in response to what you said. The first is for anybody that doubts that a major social shift could begin and then spread across the world in New Zealand, uh, I will draw your attention to the fact that New Zealand was the first democracy in the world to give the vote to women uh, decades before it actually happened in, in the United States or elsewhere. And my second point is that I think the first part of what you're describing has happened and has started to happen in terms of 
strong leaders and grassroots movements rejecting neoliberalism. I've had a lot of experience and spent a lot of time in Bolivia where Evo Morales and the MAS party have really come out and strongly rejected the ideology of neoliberalism, but they're not quite there yet in terms of recognizing the value of permaculture. And I think that's partly because uh, there's so much political wrangling that's going on. It's caused such a stir. Just the fact that they've come out against neoliberalism, it's caused such a stir in their internal politics and obviously, there's a lot of other historical and cultural factors going on in that country. Um, but I also think that, that, like I was saying, they're not quite there yet um, because they're still fighting the first leg of this battle. And it, it's possible that these folks never get there. It could be that there's a second wave or generation of leaders that recognizes that second you know, rung on the ladder. Yeah, I think it was Schopenhauer who said, the truth always passes through three phases. First, it is ignored. Then it is violently opposed. Then it is accepted as, as, as truth. So sometimes we don't know which stage we are in. You know, we sort of are wavering on a couple of different stages, um, oftentimes, and of course, different places in the world. Um, in, in one respect, um, New Zealand and, and Kiwis as, as a culture, they're called early adapters. Um, they they often embrace new new um, progressive ideas and technology, um, and lots of my friends here, of course, we're all in the permaculture um, circles in the permaculture community. There is a sense because it's such a small um, country, just over four million people, and there's this joke that there's only two degrees of separation in New Zealand. You'll always know somebody who knows somebody, um, but it might be the right formula to do some, you know, really progressive um, sustainability initiatives. And of course, my friends believe that sustainability, strong sustainability, that is, could be New Zealand's chief export. Um, and um, that that's uh, certainly, um, you know, some, somebody's got to lead. And, um, and you know, it's just the, the, the circle of friends that I have, they say, why not us? Well, Nelson Lebo, we have about run out of time, but I want to thank you for the work that you're doing, and I really hope that uh, at least to start it gets some good traction in New Zealand, and please keep us posted on the progress of your work. Yeah, and thank you, and um, yeah, we'll definitely keep you posted because a lot of what I'm doing is all about networking, and you know, I want to be able to to be communicating with people all over the world who are doing this type of work. That concludes this episode of the Ergo Innovations podcast. I'd like to conclude by reminding listeners that this and all episodes of the Ergo Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Until next time, saludos.